0: Merciful Father, we wish to be discerning and wise and simultaneously holding out our arms to sinners like ourselves, like blind beggars showing other blind beggars where we have found food, and at the same time implacably opposed to unrepentant sin and ungodliness wherever it's found. And so we pray now in this final session you would give us a special dose of wisdom and discernment in that connection so that we may gain a clearer picture of a sinful attitude that may be found in the Christian world around us from which we must repent if it's among us, and concerning which we must remain vigilant. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. At the end of the first talk, I dropped a hint, more than a hint really, about a cultural barometer by which we will be able to discern whether we've really managed to overcome actual racism. I painted the picture of a white man dating, courting, marrying a black woman, or a black man and a white woman, and I asked you to consider whether there was the slightest flutter of uncertainty, hesitation, questioning, certainly anything more on account of that biological difference in skin tone. And I suggested that if there is, we have a problem. I deliberately left it hanging because I was planning to come back to it. And the reason I'm planning to come back to it is because that scenario generates a range of responses in the reformed world. And I want to spend this next few minutes... Identifying and clarifying those responses that are wrong and specifying for the avoidance of all doubt the response that is right. At one end of the spectrum of responses uh, is the one that I hope uh, all of us found. A sense of, of course. The mere fact of difference in skin colour is of as little consequence as the difference in eye color or hair color or height between a couple. But I recognize that for various reasons, there may be a spectrum of other responses. Let me describe that possible spectrum to you. At one end of it, just people who are just unsure and don't really know why. Maybe they fear that the couple is inviting difficulty in working well together within, a similar, similar, within the same family culture when they come from such different cultures, quote-unquote. At the other end of the spectrum, right at the far end of the spectrum, I'm afraid we find professing Christians who regard what they call interracial marriage as sinful once again, a reminder, I reject that use of the term race or racial. I'm employing it simply to use the terms that are used by people with whom I disagree. Vaudi Borkham remember what he said? There's one race, because a race is a set of people who descend from a single stock, and we're all descended from Adam, and we're all descended from Noah, unless we stopped believing the Bible. And we're actually, in Christ, all adopted sons and daughters of one heavenly father so there is a distinction in the world that matters it's between those who are adopted in Christ and those who are not but the difference between people on the basis of other superficial characteristics is inconsequential because we are one race but that response and all of the responses that are adjacent to it or resemble it however mutedly With whatever degree of uncertainty, in any way, those are the responses I want to address and which I seek in the next few minutes to repudiate utterly. The name for the extreme version of the response, not somebody who's just a bit confused and isn't certain, the name for the person who thinks that, quote, interracial marriage is sinful is a kinist. Kinism is a cluster of views which includes among them that claim. I'm going to give the best case I can for kinism in a few minutes, because I think before we flatten it, we want to make sure that we're erecting it properly. Um, but kinism is anti-Christian. It is a wicked denial of the gospel, a perversion of biblical teaching. Remember what Voddy Borkum said about, back in 2017, which I summarised yesterday. The gospel is about reconciliation between man and God, and therefore it's about reconciliation between men and women, in this one race of humanity if we're not all reconciled as members of one race the gospel isn't true that's the seriousness of the issue that we're talking about and kinism I want to suggest is the new racism which we need to be on the lookout for and uh, we've got our tech guy here who's I'm probably doing something that I shouldn't be with my microphone please go ahead this won't hurt a bit. <laughs> I once did a talk like this um, that Mr. Vandenbroek organized at the University of Idaho with a microphone but no stand. Uh, remember that? No, it was very kind. I arrived about one minute before I was due to stand up because I'd been doing something else beforehand and I'd never done a sermon like a DJ, but <laughs> I'm going to stand still. Is he gone?
1: Hmm.
0: Yikes, is that better? Thank you, thank you. So why address this here? Okay, so, you with me so far? Kinism is that viewpoint at the end of this spectrum, and my intention is to address not just that, but everything which expresses the slightest resemblance or similarity or sympathy with it. The reason for addressing it here, in the context of critical social justice ideology, is this is the third way in which the rise of critical social justice ideology could harm the church. Remember, we've talked about the um, previous two talks, um, the psychologization of everything. We buy into the underlying psychology, and that hurts us. Or the embracing the platform mistake. We buy into the systems of technology which have been used to promulgate critical social justice ideology, and that harms us. Well, here we've got a different kind of problem. This is the problem that arises when Christians try to fight fire with fire. Oh, I see there are people out there who are identitarian. That is to say they believe that what matters about a person is the identity of the group that they're a member of. Well, we can play that game. We're in a world where people say, if you're white, you're guilty. If you're white, you are substandard. If you're white, your culture is somehow defective in some way. Well, we can do that. We can play identitarianism. And actually, the rise of this ideology of kinism has been correlated with the rise... It's a kind of reaction against the progressive ideologies of critical social justice. In that sense, it's understandable... But that does not make it excusable. In effect, what kinism does is to make all the same affirmations, but just to reverse them. Right? Group identity is everything. It doesn't matter whether you love each other, whether you're both Christians, whether you're not married to somebody else and you're not related to each other, and there's no reason why you shouldn't marry yet, but you've got a different kind of... Because group identity is constitutive of who you are. In particular, your skin color is constitutive of your social place. So, if a kinist were articulating their view carefully, which some do, they would say it doesn't make you inferior, it just makes you different. And therefore, different, well, different ought not to mix for various reasons, which we'll explore later. But at the heart of it, whites are the oppressed group, and the drive to fight critical social justice ideology. Has led people down exactly the same trail on a parallel track. Now, this highlights the first additional problem we're going to face. When we tackle kinism, which we're going to in a minute or two, we're going to face two major problems. The first is that many of the concerns of kinists are shared by Orthodox, Reformed, Evangelical Christians. They're opposed, like us, to cultural Marxism and critical race theory and totalitarian government and technocratic author- authoritarianism. You know, believe the experts because yeah, I know they were wrong the last fifty times, but look, they're the experts. They, Etc. Um, they're they're opposed to the ungodly imperialist pretensions of um, uh, transnational, supranational organisations like the United Nations and the European Union, which, for all the good they may have done, seem to be. Seeking a kind of unity between nations and across nations, which is not founded on and established on the supremacy of the Word of God, but actually seeks to subvert that, those uh, biblical priorities that shape nations. So they're opposed to many of the things that we might find ourselves opposed to. They're also going to affirm many of the things that we want to affirm. They'll affirm the essential tenets of the Christian faith, and they're often very conservative socially and morally. They'll come from a reformed background and quite frankly, they're likely to seek a home in the CREC because there's nowhere else much for them to go if they want to be reformed and Presbyterian because all the other denominations, no, not all the other, some, tragically, other Presbyterian denominations are going woke faster than you can say critical justice, racial bias training. So if they want to join a reformed denomination, where are they going to go? And they're quite likely to try and end up here. And they must be politely... Encouraged to repent or shown the door. You don't continue the debate with Hymenaeus and Alexander. That's not, yeah, well, let's just have a polite discussion. Once the lines have been drawn, knowingly and clearly, we can draw a dividing line at that point. Thank you. So that's the first problem. The second problem is that the the view itself is very ill-defined and even people who embrace aspects of it for understandable reasons will tend to reject the label kinest. And so it's kind of hard to know what target we should be taking aim at. So what do you do in these circumstances? What's the thing to do if you're if what you're wanting to do is to represent a view fairly and criticise the substance not the labels. We're not interested in labels not going to be arguing about words that's what Paul criticises in the pastorals, Yeah, we want to I, I'm not interested if somebody says I'm a kinist, I'm not a kinist. What we're interested in is the substance of what they believe. And so, what I want to do to begin with is to steelman the position as strongly as I can. You're familiar with the term steelman? Opposite of strawman. A strawman argument is the, the weakest version of the argument that you construct in a debate if you think you're losing so that you can look like you're winning by beating a really feeble and fragile version of the argument. And it's really frustrating when your views are straw manned, isn't it? Because you think, now that's not what I think. Now, that's not what we want to do. We want to steal man the opposing view. We want to give an articulation of kinist ideology, which even a kinist would say, actually, that's a really good representation of my views. This is what G.K. Chesterton says, where he says, I forget where he puts this, but the, the man with whom you're disagreeing, you should be able to put his case better than he can. And then you can take it to the cleaners, as we say in England. So that's what we're going to do. First... Let's build the best case we can for this ideology and then let's pick it to pieces so that we can have confidence and know where we stand. Not with the aim of alienating people. Actually with the aim of urging people to repent and to give people clarity. To give us clarity ourselves so that we don't get confused by what sometimes are confusing issues. So let's steal man kinism, shall we? There are five steps in the argument. First step. The existence of distinct nations is a good thing, and nations as nations ought to be preserved through time. We see this in scripture, a would say. The structures of nations, like laws and rulers and boundaries, are good things, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. They're gifts from God. Jesus anticipates, in fact... Um, that nations will exist when he tells his disciples to disciple them, Matthew 28. You can't disciple something that isn't there. Disciple the nations is what he says. He doesn't say people from the nations or people in the, in the nations. He says disciple the nations. That's the object of the verb. So nations must exist in order to be discipled. They should be preserved, therefore. Revelation 21 says that the glory of all nations... Note that all nations will be brought into the New Jerusalem, which means that all nations must be there to have their glory brought into the New Jerusalem. Therefore, nations must exist, nations must continue to exist, and we must act to preserve them. First step. Second step. Different nations embody distinct cultural heritages, and these two must be preserved. These are the things from the nations that will be brought into the New Jerusalem. Revelation 21, art and music and architecture and food and dance and literature and technology and everything else, all the glories of cultural life will be harvested at the resurrection. And every nation contributes different cultural artifacts in different domains of human life. And all those things are good and they will all be brought into the resurrection life of the new heaven and the new earth. And we don't want to dilute them By mixing them, wouldn't it be a shame to lose British culture and American culture by having a kind of blurgy mix of the two? Let's keep them distinct so that the distinct cultures can be preserved. That's the second step. Third step. Nations have a responsibility as nations to preserve their national and cultural heritage this generates among kinists an opposition to multiculturalism and immigration when it's not done they would say you see the negative effects people from anti-christian cultures coming in and bringing people moving to america who hate america drain on taxpayer funded services more broadly you don't want to dilute any pair of cultures by mixing them together Akinist would say it's not that I don't like that culture or that it's substandard. It's just that for the sake of that culture and for the sake of ours, let's keep them separate. That's how the argument would run. And if all nations act in that way to erect boundaries between them, then they'll all be able to preserve their national and their cultural distinctiveness, and all their glory will be maintained and can be harvested in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the third step of the argument. Fourth step: not only nations. But individuals, as individuals, have a similar responsibility to preserve elements of their culture and heritage which are close to them. A the kinist would say, Each of us is an heir of a familial culture. I'm son of Diana and Richard, and I bring that with me. And so I have an obligation to preserve. Traditions and practices and language and rituals and so on that are passed down through the generations. The way we do Christmas, the way my mum used to cook Christmas cake, and still does. The way that we celebrate birthdays, the way that we greet each other, the language we use. All these things are good gifts from God, and not just nations, but I as an individual must seek to preserve this. Hence, there's a basic preference entailed for my kin, hence kinism. I should seek to associate with people who are closer to me biologically and familially because they're the people who will help me to discharge that obligation to preserve my familial inheritance. So the way you could think about it is like this. There's a a set of concentric relational circles. People closest to me, maybe my parents, my brothers, uh, free brothers, now I'm married, my wife and children, immediate nuclear family, then extended family, and then families that are kind of like us and are a super-extended family, or families where we can't trace the relationships, but in biblical terms we'd be part of the same clan. You know, I, I don't know how far back I could trace my family, but I'm pretty sure for hundreds of years we were in England. So other English people are part of that clan, including some Yorkshiremen like my granddad, like I mentioned yesterday. And then beyond that, nations... The nation of Britain has a kind of integrity, the nation of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And only then do we discharge our obligations beyond that. Can you see? You have this hierarchy of concentric relational obligations. And what we should do is to seek to preserve our culture by associating primarily with people who are closest to us. It's biologically necessary. We can't, uh, sorry, practically necessary. We can't actually. Love everybody the same. Love is a practical thing. I love my wife in all kinds of ways that I don't love you. It's not that I don't love you. It's just I'm not making you a cup of tea in the morning. You wouldn't like it. In any case, you live somewhere different from me and you're not my family. My wife likes her. Oh, grey, with milk and no sugar. Slightly colder than I like mine. So I used to put ice cubes in it after I've made it. And, And so practically speaking, I'm going to love those closer to me. It's also a theological principle, scripturally commanded. Fifth commandment, honour your father and mother, not somebody else's. First Timothy five, eight. If anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith. This is really important. We should focus on the closer relations in this concentric arrangement. Now, because those familial connections tend to bring with them biological and genetic similarity, it will be the case, a kinist would argue, that fulfilling that obligation to discharge our duty to the closer relations will inevitably entail associating with people who are like us physically, people who look like us, people who share the same genetic traits and therefore the same hair colour and the same skin colour. And it's not that we think people with different coloured skin are bad, it's just they're different and we have obligations to remain and maintain the integrity of, remain with and maintain the integrity of the culture which is closest to ours. This is actually just what people have always done. People do this everywhere. It's actually a natural law argument that you could adduce here. But Akinis would say we have an obligation as individuals to do that. That's the fourth argument. Fifth and final. How actually do we do this? How do we preserve this cultural heritage. Well, I've mentioned the general principle already. We favour just association with our kin in social organisations, churches, businesses, where we live. We just want to build those ties so they map onto the concentric rings of familial obligation that Scripture gives us, the kinist would argue. That's the first thing. Secondly, and specifically, Marriage. A kinist would say marriage is such a big deal that that's the last thing you'd want to, to do across those cultural and therefore biological, they would say, distinctions. So a kinist would be opposed to interracial marriage. They would tell us confidently that the Bible expressly forbids the people of Israel from intermarrying with. Other nations, I'm really sorry, I can't say that bit with a straight face. Sorry. We'll get to it. And it's actually best all round. They'd also say, actually, you're if you do marry across those kind of boundaries, you're causing problems for yourself because cultural differences. And even if you get over it, people out there are so prejudiced that you're just making life difficult for yourself. That's how the argument would run. Therefore, there are these five arguments, which I not to label... The preservation of distinct nations argument, the preservation of distinct cultures argument, the anti-immigration argument, the preference for your kin argument, and the no interracial marriage argument. That's the best I could do. I think a kinist might want to add to that. I don't think they'd want to take away from it, and I don't think they'd regard it as an unfair representation. That's my best, at the moment, steel man of kinism. And I'm now going to unpick it in reverse order let 's start with the no interracial marriage argument because I cannot wait a moment longer <laughs> before pointing out the bleeding obvious I mean first I mean you noticed the first bit of sketchy logic in the slide from national identity and cultural identity through race to skin color i mean I, I don't know how many genes are involved in skin colour. I think it's six or seven or something. And then there's obviously more kind of complexity in that. I don't know how many genes are involved in whether or not you can roll your tongue. I don't see anybody making a big fuss about that. But I'm pretty much done with making excuses for that kind of sloppiness. Remember what Voddy said. There's one race. And even if we grant for the sake of demolishing the argument, that terminology of race, let's never forget there's only one of them. But let's be fair, let's think about different nationalities. Let's ignore that bit of the problem. Even here, the argument falls apart. I'm a little bored with recounting the long list of international marriages that are commended in scripture. Boaz and Ruth and Salmon and Rahab and Bathsheba and Uriah and Moses and Zipporah, who's either a Midianite or a Cushite. I think probably she's a Midianite who was called a Cushite in Numbers 12 as an insult by Moses' sister, which is why the Lord is so angry with her. And strikes her with leprosy. Come on! This exercises kinists so much. I I can tell you how much I love you, okay. I, I actually spent quite a lot of time reading some kinist literature in preparation for talking about this. And I and I found one article 15 pages long that was attempting to answer the claim that Salman had married a Canaanite woman, Rahab. I mean the Bible says that Salmon married. Rahab, what's going on here? Well, the the argument goes that Rahab was in fact an Israelite, living in Jericho in the land of Canaan. Um, No, the way that we know this is because Rahab, we are told, is actually a Hebrew name. And we know it's a Hebrew name because it appears in the book of Job in chapters 9 and 26, which is one of the oldest books in the Hebrew Bible, very, very ancient. And it's also in Psalm 89, it's in the book of Isaiah. So because it's a Hebrew name of great long-standing, way before the conquest, therefore we know that Rahab was actually an Israelite by birth. Okay. What the author apparently failed to notice is that Rahab's name does not appear in any of those books at all. It only appears in describing the shady lady from Jericho. It might be transliterated the same in your English Bibles, but it is a completely different Hebrew word. Rahab, the lady from Jericho, is actually Rahav with a ch, like Bach. And it's a feminine noun with a heit. It's the Hebrew letter ch. Rahab, or Rahav, which appears in all those other texts, is a masculine noun. And you know it's a masculine noun because it's the subject of a masculine participle in Psalm 87, verse 4. This is about as good exegesis as confusing the names Wayne and Jane, because they kind of sound similar. And I sort of want to say to Kinnis, look, you want to play theological hardball, then you're going to have to actually get some level of exegetical competence, and this is not acceptable. The problem with so-called mixed marriages in Scripture is not mixed nationalities, it's mixed religious commitments. Is that not obvious? Like, what, Why is this just not glaringly obvious. Now, Boaz marries a Moabite woman, that's good. Numbers twenty five, all those Israelites start, well, whatever, with Moabite women, and the problem is they bring their idolatry with them. That's the problem. Joshua twenty three, Nehemiah thirteen, Numbers twenty five and so on. It's not the wrong nation, it's wrong God. Now remember there is a distinction between two groups of people who are all one race in scripture, there are those who are sons and daughters of our heavenly father and there are those who are not it would be a bad thing to marry an unbeliever if you're a believer, yes yes, that identity matters more on that tomorrow I can't remember the exact title of the sermon that I gave your wonderful administrator but it's something about the one group identity that is good and we're going to be looking at Luke 5 and I'm looking forward to that far more than I'm enjoying this rampage through this we have to talk about Jesus tomorrow morning, come to church tomorrow will you Right. Now, still, when you steal man an argument, you know you've got to pick up every single bit of it. Every single bit. So just think for a second. Of the cultural challenges point. Is it not true, a kinist would say, that let's say, a, a white man and a black woman, we might all accept it, they might be delighted about it, but they're going to experience all kinds of challenges out there in the ungodly, unbelieving world. And isn't it isn't it just better and wiser to avoid making it difficult for people? Shouldn't we, it's not that it's sinful, some kinists would say, but it's just not wise. Can you see the strength of the argument? How do we deal with this? What's the way to respond to the, we're trying to help you, we're trying to protect you from the cultural disappro- disapprobation, pardon me, the cultural disapprobation that you will experience because you're a mixed marriage? please will somebody tell me when we started caring about what the world thinks about what we do and say and believe? This is the CREC for Pete's sake. We, when did we care what the secular world thinks about our political conservatism? When did we care about what the secular world thinks about our opposition to scientific materialism or sexual deviancy of various kinds? Uh, marriage, when did we care what The secular world thinks about the fact that we think that one man and one woman should be married for life? When did we start caring that the world despises us because of our opposition to same-sex marriage and our opposition to abortion and our opposition to vaccine mandates? we, We don't care what the world thinks. We are committed to doing what's right and suddenly you want me to believe that the reason that a man who's black and a woman who's white shouldn't get married is because we should start caring what unbelievers think about it. Please! I'm not buying it. Whatever you're selling, I'm not buying it. I was um, at a conversation, and this is where this has implications in lots of other places. Once you realise this, it's not just marriage; implications all over the place. Really interesting conversation. Pardon me, one second. With a man in one of our churches, I'll tell you where. Lovely guy, and and he was not commending his viewpoint at all, but he was just sharing with me the kind of the the way this issue hits home for him. So he's he runs a business where there's a quite a heavy customer-facing element. Okay, so he's got a bunch of staff who. Um, They've got to interface with customers. And so the issue of, okay, will the customers or the clients trust the company comes up, you know, in competition with other people. So you send your representative, your salesman round, and he says, the culture around here is racist. People would rather buy from a white man than a black man. And I've got a great guy who I know who's a black guy who could work for me. So now what should he do? First, (laughs) When did it become right to accommodate to other people's sinful attitudes? When did it even become wise to accommodate to worldly attitudes in business? Didn't we learn this about the Lord's Day? Didn't we learn, like... When, when we started opening restaurants and coffee shops and all our accountants who aren't Christians started saying, you know, it's crazy you closing on Sunday because there's 17 or 20 22% of your revenue that comes in on Sunday. When did we start saying, you know you know what, it's a really good economic argument. For the sake of the shareholders, probably, we should break the law of God. <laughs> we t- I've got a friend in London, Nick Pike, who's a um, lovely man. He was a, a deacon and an elder at the church that I pastored in London, um, he uh, opened a restaurant in Harpenden, a very beautiful little town just north of London. Um, uh, the restaurant is called Bar Azita, a beautiful restaurant, Mediterranean Grill. And he opened this restaurant at the, heart, at the height of the worst recession that Britain had seen in a generation. He has never opened on Sunday. Every member of his staff gets one weekend day off every week, which is completely unheard of in the British hospitality industry, right? Um, I forget where he is in the pecking order of TripAdvisor reviews. I think he's in the top 5%, 4.5 stars, 900 and something reviews. He's now got three branches and a tapas bar somewhere. And there is not an accountant in the world who would have said that was a smart thing to do. It's just business, Mr. Pike. You know, you've really got to break the law of God and open on Sunday. Because the Lord is, you know, your God is in control of your religion, but he's not really in control of economics. Can you see the insidious stupidity of this way of thinking? Where suddenly, you know... Hardcore presuppositionalist, liturgical theonomist, Calvinists. And as soon as it starts to cost us something, we abandon. No, we don't. No, we don't. We we are not going to compromise, regardless of what anybody else thinks. I can tell you, I mean, every marriage has cultural problems. My wife, poor poor girl, (laughs) she's a half Austrian former Catholic Jew. And she married me. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine the the heartache that she's gone through? There are cultural getting-to-know-you's in every relationship. When did we start letting one biological feature become a proxy for anything significant? Get over it. Second, the preference-for-your-kin argument. This is... Uh, more subtly mistaken, it's actually just an overstatement and a slight misstatement of a biblical principle. Of course, the Bible says, First uh, Timothy 5, you should take care your, of your relatives, but we are not to absolutize that against other biblical injunctions to, well, for example, Galatians 6.10, especially those who are of the household of faith. Can you see? So, of course, you know, if your parents need you to look after them. And I hear the stories I hear about people just in this town, as well as Christians elsewhere, looking after their parents. just wonderful. Of course we have an obligation to care for those who are closest to us. Parents who are provide, providing for your children, and then children when they're older for their parents. And You don't provide for somebody else's parents in the same way you provide for your own. Of course we have those obligations. But is it not the case that there are other ways of thinking about relationships besides that? That overall picture where you've got just that one set of biological concentric rings is a mistaken picture. It's not the only kin that matters. And so the problem here, I just struggle to see why this is so controversial. Like, good Samaritan, alias and sojourners, do we need to trawl through all the exegesis of biblical texts where the people of God are expressly commanded to look after people who are different from them, to express preference for people who hate them, Love your enemies for Pete's sake. So we love people who are in the church. We love people who are outside the church. We love those who are close to us. If we stumble across a man on the Jericho Road and we pick him up and we take him to the inn and we pay for his stay because we just stumbled across him. It doesn't matter where he's from. Third, the anti-immigration argument. The background here is somewhat different. Really what's going on is um, the kinists are reacting to really bad immigration policies. And in my view the problem is not so much the immigration policies as the uh, bad incentives that are put in place to encourage immigration for all kinds of bad reasons. Now, here's an interesting point at which we might actually end up with a bunch of different opinions about the appropriate politics of immigration. And I've got a kind of vested interest in this at the moment, for obvious reasons. I'm not from this part of Idaho. um, Or from Idaho at all, in fact. But there are just some clarifications to get in mind, aren't there? Let's, as we're thinking about what's the proper approach to uh, maintaining uh, border security, let's remember there's a difference between genuine refugees who are fleeing persecution and people who are moving somewhere because they're ready and able to work and people who are moving somewhere because of the welfare programs that are available there that aren't available back home, in which case the problem we might think is the welfare programs, Correct is at least a possibility. Now, I don't want to get into the complexities of that political theological question, but I would submit to you that if we find ourselves here, and we certainly have found ourselves in parts of Europe, in a position where it's just not possible for the, the state to pay for the welfare that it's promised to the people who live within its borders as people stream in across those borders. If, if nations find themselves in that trouble, it might be because they were foolish to put that welfare in place in the first place. Not because we don't want to care for the poor. We do want to care for the poor, right? With our money. We do not get to vote in somebody else to take money off somebody else to care for the poor. We get to care for the poor ourselves. Voluntary charitable giving, not tax somebody else and spend. I would submit to you is the biblical approach. And so maybe Calvin's right. Maybe when God is angry with a nation, he gives it wicked rulers, you construct policies that actually cause problems. But whatever your position on that I know that quote is actually not a direct quote from Calvin, it's a summary of a couple of things commentary in Romans um, 13 a bit in book 4 of the Institutes but the gist of it is right there the, the underlying issue is whatever your views of immigration and the rightness or wrongness of legislation that will take you in certain directions doesn't commit you to any aspect of kinism. We could have a a cheerful disagreement about the best way to organise our welfare budget and taxation and borders, but that would be immaterial to the underlying question that we're considering. So let's move on from number three. Number four. This is the preservation of culture argument. This is the point which says it's not just that nations should be preserved, that's the one we're coming to next, it's that nations embody a distinct culture and the, the thing we must be careful to do is to make sure that we preserve our distinct culture. And this is what people have always done. People have always preferred their own culture. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not been abrogated by the gospel. Uh, we should seek to embody it and maintain it now. Right. Well, there are different strands to this. So let's just think about it first. The claim that this is just what people do is an extremely flaky claim. Because people have just done all kinds of things throughout history. People in Somalia practice female genital mutilation. I'm yet to find a natural law advocate who wants to say that we can make a case for that on the basis of what's normal in that culture. So can we please dispense completely with the this is just what people do? Because what we're interested in is what the Bible says about what people just do. The second problem with this preservation of culture argument is kind of obvious if you've ever been anywhere outside of your home state. It fails to grasp what a culture is. Every culture that now exists, to the extent that you can define it at all, is a mishmash development from all kinds of different cultural influences that have preceded it. Now, this might not be so obvious to people who have not had the privilege of living in different countries. I can tell you that when you visit different countries, you start to see how cultures that moved from one to another... Changed in the process. I'll give you an example. Back we went on vacation in um, uh, the hill country in Texas, in Fredericksburg. Now, uh, the inhabitants of Fredericksburg, as you might know, take great pride in their German heritage. If you know the history, uh, there's a whole influx of German people who moved there from 1846 onwards. And if you go to the um, uh, the the town square, and there's all the kind of German food, and there's an evident. Uh, influence of German culture in that place but I can tell you, I've been to Germany like lots of different parts of Germany Fredericksburg is like no part of Germany that exists today (laughs) and probably like no part of Germany that's ever existed because cultures always just change, every culture only exists for a period of time, actually the whole enterprise of saying preserve my culture is a kind of idolatry, it's trying to freeze in time something that God has made to develop and shape There were cultural features of medieval England, which are beautiful, but I don't see anybody wanting to go back to their heating
1: systems.
0: (laughs) In other words, once we grasp that what a culture is, is necessarily a historically temporary phase in a people's life, we won't be so worried about trying to preserve it, because it can't be done but it will be harvested in the new heavens and the new earth. In the new heavens and the new earth, all the glories of Babylon will be brought in. Correct? All the glories of Rome and ancient Greece. All the glories of 1950s America. All the glories of 18th century Mexico. Everything that was good in those places, which now isn't experienced and doesn't exist, will be harvested and glorified and presented pristine to be enjoyed in the new heavens and the new earth. You don't need to preserve a nation or preserve a culture in that foolish way in order to make it harvestable. I mean, if it were necessary, then what is God going to do about Babylon? It doesn't exist anymore. The Babylonian culture doesn't either. But there's a more subtle point here. This preservation of culture's argument fails to understand what happens when cultures mix. simple fact is, Nicole and I got married. She brought with her all these weird Austrian traditions. And I brought all these normal English ones. <laughs> and what we got was not a bland blend of the two. There's a philosophical issue here, which is highlighted actually in um, Stephen Pinker's book, The Language Instinct. Let me give you two minutes on this, it's kind of interesting. When you think about mixing in systems generally, there are two kinds of, at least two kinds of mixing you can get. You can have blended systems and what Pinker calls discrete combinatorial systems. I'll come back to that in a second. Blended systems are like paint. You get black paint and white paint and you mix them, what do you get? Grey paint. You get some kind of bland mixture of the two where all the peculiarities of both are lost. And so if you get all the different paint colours in the world and you put them all into one big bucket and you stir them all up, you'd get one bland, horrible, dirty brown colour. And people imagine that that's what cultures are like because it's kind of instinctive. We have that mental model readily available. You think my uh, Dutch-influenced, well, there's a clue, Midwestern culture and this lady who you want to court, Ethiopian culture, well, we'll end up losing the best of both of them because it's like paint. It's not like paint. Culture is a discrete combinatorial system. This is most known in linguistics. Those of you who study linguistics will have come across this. Language has a quite small number of discrete elements, let's say words, which, when combined, do not produce a bland Blair mixture of nothingness. What they actually do is produce the possibility of far more complexity and texture and beauty than you started with. And the proof of this is that there are probably... 3,000 really commonly used English words and maybe ten or 15,000 quite commonly English used English words that you use most of the time, and then there's like 100 and something thousand words in English that could be used, right? How many sentences can you write in English? You know? If you... This is Pinker's math now. If you just restrict yourself to 10-word sentences, and everybody knows that most of my sentences are longer than 10 words, but if you just stick with 10-word sentences and then you look at how English functions, basically... Uh, each next word in the sentence, you could have a very wide choice of what words could go there. You could have hundreds of different words that go there next. But let's imagine that each time you get to a new word, you could choose between 10. If you had 10 word sentences, you would have the possibility of 10 billion different sentences. Just from combining words, like, the little house on the prairie is big and green. My mum's car in her garage never gets driven fast. Your pastor's dog eats its food while making grunting noises. You know. You know, these are, this is, with a discrete combinatorial system, here's the point. With a discrete combinatorial system, the mixing of different elements produces an explosion of new things that are wonderful. It doesn't just produce a bland nothingness. Now, culture is like a discrete combinatorial system and the proof is it, it, of it is the fact that we are not now living in a bland undifferentiated world when you mix <laughs> lapsed catholic now protestant half austrian jew and englishman you, you don't get something that looks like either of them but you don't get something bland I, I say you, you get something wonderful for which I thank God for you. And this is what happens whenever you get people coming together, and particularly in marriage, they create a new thing. Same thing happens in music. How many notes are there in a scale? Twelve. Man, that's pretty limiting, isn't it? <laughs> no, 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 Just think. Twelve notes in a scale, eight octaves and a bit on a piano, if you've got a big piano, and just think what you can do with those twelve times eight notes. So it's less than a hundred notes. Well, I must be like less than 100 tunes. No, 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 no. Can you see? Music is the same. Food is the same. When you, when you get 10 different ingredients and make something with food, and Pastor Apple's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the aesthetic gastronom- gastronomist over there. You don't get like, a oh, this is a bland mixture of chicken and coriander and cream and white wine and garlic and chili and rice. <laughs> you get... Mm. Don't you? <laughs> That's what... So, and we have this... It's a, it's a cognitive bias to imagine that uh, culture is a blended system, like paint. It's not. And so it's not just the case that culture can't be preserved and doesn't need to be preserved, because it's always changing. It's the fact that when it changes, it produces something new and glorious and wonderful. And the proof of it, I hope, is found in all your homes. And so finally, the preservation of distinct nations argument. The claim here is that in order to maintain the possibility of harvesting all of the glory of the nations in the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21, and to disciple the nations, Matthew 28, we need to preserve those nations as nations. So, you know, if America ceased to exist as a nation, which is a hilarious thing to think, isn't it? Because, like, a nation? <laughs> America? You know Jonathan Edwards, your finest theologian, actually thought of himself as an Englishman? Just saying. <laughs> but anyway, let's, let's, let's simplify and imagine there's such a thing as a, as a nation, which is a hermetically sealed thing. Um, is it the case that they need to be preserved until just before Resurrection Day in order to be harvested? No, of course not. Babylon and its glory, and Rome and its glory, and Greece and its glory, and Britain, and this nation, America, all of its glories will be harvested even if they cease to exist tomorrow. Now, that raises a second point. If if that did happen, would that be a bad thing? Well, um, I think it would, in a sense. I, I don't want... Britain, uh, to perish. I, I love my country and I, I love the country that I've been welcomed into here with my family as well. Um, well, let's talk about your country. You love America, right? We, of course you want America to endure. Wouldn't it be wonderful if America did endure for the remaining 400,000 and something years until the resurrection of the body, uh, the resurrection of the dead and the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. Well, what's going to make it endure? What will make it endure is not kinist attempts to keep the Mexicans out. What does the Bible say causes their nation to endure? Is it not repentance? Jeremiah 18. If at any time... I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. We should be praying for a repentant nation. Then it will endure. But if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I'll build up and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. And we know because of what Jeremiah says elsewhere that it will be brought low and shattered and ruined. It will die. Nations die. Is that a good thing? Hmm. The death of nations is a painful thing to contemplate because we love nations like we love people. Is the death of a person a good thing to contemplate? No, no, no. Nobody wants the death of a person. But actually, we know that in God's economy, the death of people is a... Is a painful reality. And what, what we long for is the resurrection of that person. In the same way, I think we should have that attitude to our nations. Yes, we should long for this nation to endure. Long may it endure. We have a new king in England. May that nation endure. But what will make it do so? Only faithfulness. And so if my nation continues to turn from the living God. Should I, should I long for its destruction? I don't think so. But should I dare to stand in the way of the word and the decree of the living God? One of the hardest things to say to a kid is actually uh, there comes a point when the preservation of a nation is a bad thing. And that's the point when God has decided that the preservation of that nation is a bad thing. This is not an easy thing to say to a room full of people who you are mostly not from the nation in which I was raised. But this is not a nationalistic point at all. This is a point about what God does with nations. We should, of course, long for nations to endure, but the only way to endure is by faithfulness. And if in God's economy, some nations that now exist... Have been foreordained for destruction. We know that what's good in them will be harvested and something else will be raised in their place and that will be good in God's purposes. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we are thankful to you for your word and for uh, how it speaks to our present situation in truth. All of us, I suspect, feel we have spent rather too long contemplating the train wreck of the world around us this last couple of days, and we thank you that, nonetheless, your word speaks with brightness and clarity. We look forward to tomorrow when we gather around your word and around your table to eat and drink and celebrate and to hear your voice and renew covenant with you. And may we at least take this from uh, these uh, talks and sessions of discussion in this last couple of days, that we have a clearer idea of the outlines of Baal so that we may not bow down and worship him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
2: First question. Can race be a useful heuristic that Christian societies may use for good?
0: Uh, I don't think so. No, So race there understood in the, in the objectionable way in which we're willing to use it for the sake of arguing and, and, and debating with people with whom we might disagree. So I'll shift my chair around so you can look at me. Um, I think the problem with that is um, at least twofold. First, it's highly invidious because we know how that can be misused. And anybody who thinks that it's not dangerous to think in that way is kind of kidding themselves. The second problem is um, a more mathematical one, actually. Um, and it's that the, with every characteristic, every characteristic that you could measure about people of different races, the overlap between the distributions is far greater than any difference in the mean between the distributions. Some of you are statistics. Gurus, you know exactly what I'm talking about but imagine two bell curves, right? One represents, I don't know, some trait of a particular racial group and the other, another trait of, the same trait in a different racial group. There'll be some groups and traits where the curves are not exactly overlapping. They'll be shifted slightly. And they, even if they're the same shape, which they might not be, they might be actually a different shape as well, bimodal or something, but they're going to be shifted like this. So yes, there's a small uh, statistical difference in the mean between the two distributions. But just picking two people at random, one from each group, tells you next to nothing about the likelihood that one of them is more or less than the other in relation to that trait. So it's not like um, male and female upper body strength. With male and female upper body strength, it's like this. Right, the top five percent of women are about as strong as the bottom ten percent of men. You know, the, the curves there. If you're thinking about strength, pick a guy, which is what you do, right? When you're when you're you're moving house and you need somebody to unload the truck, you say we need half a dozen guys to help us. If my wife shows up, it's like, well, thanks, babe, but you can't carry very much because you're little, and it's not an insult. It's just because the she's in this kind of, but in. In traits that have to do with race, uh, sorry, in differences that have to do with race, the curves in every domain that I know of, and I can't, I've done a bit of reading about it, the curves are basically overlapping. So there's no statistically uh, justifiable um, basis for race as a proxy in that kind of way. Second question,
2: kind of a change in direction, relates to feelings. Hmm question is, how would you encourage a young Christian who doesn't feel forgiven, huh. yeah. thought, feel that God loves them, feel
0: the joy of the Lord? Yeah, okay. Um, so, let me say two or three things. So first up, um, and I've emphasized this at various points, what I'm not saying is that feelings don't matter. What I'm saying is that Attending to our feelings as such is a hopeless mission. So um, feelings in general are uh, an emotional response to something. And the question is, what's the something? So that's the first thing. So second, um, the something might just be misunderstanding. So we might be in one of those situations where... Somebody's just never read um, the gospel narratives of Jesus' grace and his kindness to all those tax collectors and sinners. And they, go, they need to go to their pastor or their friend at church, or one of the elders or somebody, and just have... And there, in the counselling session, the counselling session could be the solution. That's one of those those rare cases where it's really what's lacking is just information. Yeah, um, But... Most of the time, that's not the case. You might need reminding of something. But I would suggest that we're we're back to how we are formed as people. We're formed in community. We're formed by uh, communal rituals, particularly worship. But worship is formative in part because it's an archetypal ritual that that speaks of the whole of our lives. And so I'd encourage such a person to... um, to start with, the make sure you've you know go talk to your pastor. Make sure you've you're not missing some in, theological insight. But then, to assuming you're not, and assuming you've not committed some horrible sin, and you need to tell Pastor Josh where you've hidden the body. Um, your wholehearted engagement in worship and learning to experience worship as genuinely representative of uh, your encounter with the living God. It is your encounter with the living God. um, Will be valuable. And then learning to instantiate those things in your life. Um, So I'll give you one example. I was talking to a man at All Saints recently about his personal devotions. And I said, well, so what do you do? And he was talking about how he used to organise his time and he's kind of rushed in the morning, busy, been promoted. He's very competent at work and so on, and so he's got limited time in the mornings. I said, well, look, could you, could you find 10 minutes? He's like, yeah, I could do that. Um, and I said, well, do you like coffee? He's like, yeah, i like coffee. Um, so I said, get yourself a cup of coffee. Sit down in your favorite chair. Put your coffee down. Get your Bible there. And drink the coffee as an act of worship. He's like, What? <laughs> Well, are you are you not thankful for that cup of coffee? So yeah, of course I am. Well, isn't thankfulness an act of worship? Um, learn to appropriate all of the things that you do in a um, more self-conscious way as gifts from God and manifestations of His kindness to you. Um, and. This is what's been picked up on by the mindfulness movement. You've heard of the mindfulness movement, some of you. It's a secular movement, basically, which is um, absent God from the picture, It's a bit of a problem, but they've they've still realized that just um, a self-conscious immersion in and mindfulness of whatever you're doing in that moment is, is enriching. You're walking down the path and you listen to the crunch of the snow under your feet. Well, how much more is that enriching and wonderful if, as a Christian, you're experiencing that as a gift of God's kindness to you? God is manifest in the things he's made. And the scriptures are how we learn to read the world around us. We learn to read history. We learn to read the things he's given us, and we receive them as gifts from him. And so um, this is a point that Calvin makes, isn't it, in his Institutes? We don't receive scripture as an alternative to God's revelation in the world. Scripture is the window through which we view God's revelation in the world. And of course it tells us new things as well, but it also shows us what God is doing in our circumstances and in our lives. And what that means is that you can inhabit your circumstances and live your life more self-consciously aware of God's kindness to you in those circumstances. And I think that's, so that's a long answer, but I, I, I really want to help people in those kind of situations. <laughs> I just wanted to say so much. I think that is the kind of... Path I take. And, and what you'll find is, yeah, feelings uh, will spring forth unbidden in those circumstances. Just on
2: that last point, I think you're right to highlight, and this is something that your talks all pointed to, and that is that our current perspective on, on social justice, the, the expressive individual self, sees feelings as locked in. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. If I don't feel joy in these ways, I can't.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's terminal
1: forming, yeah.
2: And the whole point about the Psalms and so forth, biblical perspective, is that my looking out at the world external to me, Mm -hmm. the goodness of God and what He's done and accomplished in Christ, is bidding me out of myself, Mm -hmm. and also the grounds or the means for me shaping myself into something or being shaped by those things into something that I'm not at the moment.
1: Yes, yes. So I have the
2: potential to grow. I have mm-hmm. the potential yes. to realize. And I think that's one of those things that David recognizes, that he doesn't feel joy or he is in the depths of sorrow. Mm-hmm. And then he says, soul, why are you in despair within me? Mm-hmm. Hope in God. And yes. I will again praise him as a means
0: of his
1: heart being lifted yes. up. Yes, yes,
0: Yeah, no, I think that's, yeah. There's, I mean, there's so much, we, we can talk about that more, I guess. I, I don't want to yes. forestall yeah. all other questions, no, but that's let's that's pick right right.
2: him up and maybe... So, uh, they get harder as we go
0: along. Okay. <laughs> <you are>. Great.
2: <laughs> First, what is the best path forward if the biz- if the business where I am uh, employed goes woke? Hmm. Keep my head down, stand against it, and get fired. What should I do?
0: Uh, yeah, that's not easy, and because it, it depends so much on the specifics of people's circumstances, um, and. So the kinds of questions I'd want to ask would be um, to what extent are you being required to do things which are sinful when you do them? Or is it just you're being required to endure things that are extremely irritating? Right? Um, that, well, that's living in a cursed world. You know? That's thorns and thistles. Get used to it. You know? I don't like walking down the street seeing the Shrine of Baal. Yeah, well, I don't like it either. I don't like sitting in a critical social justice awareness workshop. Me neither. But I mean, if you're being paid to do that, um, then (laughs) it's it's not going to do the company any good. But that's different from the scenario in which you're being required to do things, the commission of which entails moral iniquity on your part. So I'd try and make that distinction. The second thing I would say is... um, I would be at least to some degree looking for alternatives. So um, you're responsible certainly for yourself and in many cases for a family and for children and so on. And you don't want to get yourself into a position where you don't have any alternative, which might be the case now, so it'd be good to try and figure out what the alternatives would be. And you certainly don't want to act in a way which is kind of... uh, hasty and ill-considered and precipitate and leaves you in trouble. So if you go from the, the natural evil of having to endure a woke culture which is irritating to a natural evil of being unemployed, your children won't thank you. Um, and I think sometimes we mistake a principled stand against sin for um, blinkered stubbornness and we imagine that the latter is to be commended. It's not. It's, we could just get ourselves into it. So I, I, I'd want to Encourage that. And then I think, um, in some contexts, a kind of conversation with people above you, off, off-the-record conversation with your boss or your line manager or whoever else is, is a good thing. Remember, not, they might not be able to go on the record, um, but many employers are just... Sick up to here with this, but they're not very clear thinking. They've got lots of other things to do, and they've got somebody on the board now who's constantly banging on about something, justice, equity, training. So, and we can keep him quiet for another six months if we have a half day training. So, um, trying to discern whether your boss is the compliant, overbusy victim of some other activist, or whether your boss is the activist, is kind of helpful. Um, Pincourt and Lindsay's book, counter Workcraft, is helpful in making those distinctions. And I don't think either is desirable. You want a boss who's kind of steadfast and solid, but um, you, um, you, want, you don't want to react to the confused, busy executive in the same way you're reacting to the activist. So.
2: Heavy lifting now. hmm Pastors in our denomination have promoted and defended a book by Stephen Wolf about Christian nationalism. In this book, he claims that shared blood and shared heroic ancestors are important to ethnic unity and also that ethnic unity is critical to ecclesiastical and political unity. How is this not a Christian version of wokeness? Is that in, in that it is an attempt to awaken a sense of shared ethnicity among mostly white Christian Americans and encourage them to self-consciously pursue their own class interests.
0: Um, so, okay, so, look, I thought this question was going to come. I didn't think it would be that long when it did. Um, the, uh, Stephen Wolf's book is 500 and something pages long. And I have read it. Um, but I'm, I'm cautious about um, making a criticism on the fly on the basis of an assertion about what it says. It's a long and complex book and quite a nuanced one. Um, that said, second, some of the things in the question, uh, yes, that... Irrespective of whether they're commended in Stephen Wolfe's book, I've, I've spoken for 50 minutes or something about um, kinism and kinist-adjacent and kinist-like thought. And I think probably, if I ask you just to recall some of those things, some of my comments about integrity of nations, the place of nations in God's economy, the significance of culture and biology and those concentric circles and so on, some of that may play into some of those substantive concerns and I'm not now making a comment about whether those things are represented in Stephen Wolf's book. Second. Third, um, I don't think it's clear yet whether that book is as consequential as it seems to be making waves in the publishing world. I know it did pretty well on the Amazon bestsellers list. I I know it's attracted a lot of heat and positive and negative reviews and so on. Um, when I read it, I, I didn't think it was as consequential as some people seem to think it is. And a lot of what goes on in publishing is marketing. And that's not to say it's bad. I mean, if you're the publisher, you're, you're invested in this thing, sure, go right ahead. And don't—that's a great thing to do. It's Canon Press. I, we love Canon Press. and, and So obviously they're going to push their book. They see it get traction. They're going to push it some more. It's just business, right? Um, but it, it doesn't follow from that that it's as consequential as the noise right now would make it seem. Um, so uh, the jury's out on that one, I think. Um, and uh, one final comment. I do think one of my... If I did have the uh, privilege of sitting down with uh, Dr. Wolf and just talking about the book, I really want to push him on the natural law thing. I think the... Uh, the it's, it, it, it's okay to... to to say, okay, I'm standing on the reformed tradition, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but there's quite a debate in the reformed tradition about the proper way to understand the function of natural law and general revelation and so on. And I I think that's quite a significant vulnerability in the overall argument. Now, other critics have written, Brian Mattson and others have written critiques, which I think might also be pretty substantive. So, thank you.
2: It feels harder to break the pattern of internet frivolity when you have an office job that puts you on a web browser all day. What counsel or admonition do you have for someone in such a career who wants to establish self-control over their use of technology but can't truly separate from the basic
0: media? Yeah, yeah, that's a difficult one. And I think it's just a there is an issue of self-discipline. What I sometimes want to say to, especially young men, is like you're you are far too busy to be spending time on social media and they sort of look at me like I'm not that busy it's like you jolly well should be <laughs> um, there's so many things you could be doing with your time and same thing for young ladies as well But the, 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 the like school kids like 15, 16 years old think of all the things you could do with an hour in the evening every evening for the rest of you know, your teenage years so, so there's, there's partly just a motivational point to be made about come on, take control of your life um, and, if somebody's going to say, "Oh, it's difficult for me because I'm spending all day on social media or on the Internet, and you know, I, I just want to say, I, I'm, I'm not sure I buy the it's really difficult for me," because that, that whole trajectory, I think everybody's life is difficult in different ways. And part of the, the um, responsibility we have is to not make circumstance into an excuse. To describe how a problem arises is not to excuse your acquiescence in the face of the problem. And that that, people slide from one to the other all the time. It's Freud. It's like, I can explain how these desires have arisen in my heart. Therefore, I've excused them. No, no, you've just identified what you need to repent of. So get to it. And and if you're working in those industries, you'll know better than I do the kinds of tools that are available to you to help you to cut your time on um, uh, internet and social media stuff. I've just installed an app on my phone, paid $15 for it. It's a new um, homepage. That's it. You you see it? Completely black. I can find all the apps that I need, but it blocks all the notifications that I haven't asked for. And just psychologically, the fact that it's black makes it a lot less appealing to just, you know, I take my phone out of my pocket because I had a text message and I checked the text message and then my you know, chest.com icon is there going, he looking at me I'm, it makes it a lot less tempting to do that because psychologically, colour and shape and all those kind of fancy icons make you want to click them. Now I have to scroll through a whole bunch of black and white menus to find that and it's just easier to resist the temptation to do so. So you know the technology better than I do. If you're the person with this question, so...
2: Can you draw a line between French Revolution's cry of Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité and that of diversity, equality, and inclusivity? To your knowledge, are there any healthy examples of how Christians stood against the French Revolution
0: mm-hmm. that can inform our reactions to what in our own day? Yeah, yeah. I, um, that will be outside my... The, the detailed history of the French Revolution, I'd ask Chris Schleck about that or somebody who's a proper historian. I mean, just seriously... I, uh, that's, a, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I don't know whether... A, even if there weren't direct lines from the battle cry of the French Revolution to diversity, equity, and inclusion, you can see um, substructural resemblances in the way that vocabulary and ideas which s- we're used to hearing as good things are basically relabeled. New content is placed into them. And so there is that similarity. But of course, it's coming from a very different time and place and, and how Christians respond to it. Um, I would love to know the answer to that question. So if somebody wouldn't mind looking that up for me, that'd be great. <laughs> Seriously, I think that's a really good question. I just don't know.
2: Can you make one or two suggestions for how to respond to the apostles of critical race theory and how not to respond? Hmm.
0: Yeah. Um. So... The apostles of critical race theory. Um, are we thinking of the um, the public figures or um, local activists in your um, immediate circles at work or so on? We might be thinking of either. Um, I think it is it is worth gaining some familiarity with the overall intellectual landscape, but I wouldn't um, I wouldn't wish on anybody having to read Ibram X Kendi or. Um, Robin D'Angelo, I just don't think they're very good books. But if you read um, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay's book um, Cynical Theories, that's a really good book. And it's actually just really informative. It's not They're not Christians. James is a lapsed Catholic. But he's got a good podcast. He swears too much. But, but, um, but it, but, so in other words, responding to the apostles in the sense of the big leading public figures, I think it's worth familiarizing yourself with the, the landscape. And clearly you think it is a little bit, hence you're here now. Um, in terms of people you actually meet, I think you've got the usual range of questions that you have when you're engaging evangelistically with somebody, which have to do with what kind of relationship you already have with them. Is it a long-term or short-term thing? Um, what, are the, what are the costs to you and to those who are dependent on you if you antagonise them? Um, you, know, you, you might not want to antagonise your taxi driver so much that he drops you off in ten miles outside the town, and, and that's actually fine. Um, uh, but th- those kinds of considerations. In the ideal world, here's the thing: in the ideal world, what we'd like to have is a situation where we, as Christians, are the people who can get past the postmodern resistance to dialogue, because dialogue is a tool of oppression, and there's no truth to find anyway. Um, we want to be able to get past the disembodied and siloed character of social media discussion and sit down and actually get to know somebody. So if you're the person who is a friend of the activist in your workplace and you can go out with him or her for a cup of coffee and actually talk, then that can be great. And I, I think in those kind of situations, I'm very reluctant to script your conversation for you because sometimes people will do that. They'll, you know, What should I say to my friend in this... And then the pastor says, you should say this, and it sounds so cool when he says it, but then it just doesn't work in the actual realities of your conversation. I think what really matters is your relationship and your understanding of them as a person um, and your ability, if you know a bit about the background of where they're coming from, you're able to then speak and ask questions of them in an informed way. So those kinds of things. One final thing, especially for university students and younger people in the workplace, um, you don't have to be um, David's mighty men. Like it's You're at the University of Idaho. It's not your job to take down the progressive English department. You, you don't need to do that. You can go to school in Babylon and learn about how to build bridges and then go and build bridges for Jesus. That's okay. And you don't... Uh, we, we shouldn't... We shouldn't construe cultural leadership in a way that means that I'm personally responsible for being a kind of frontline sniper against every intrusion into my pristine Christian worldview, uh, and that can lead to a kind of Christian hyperactivism, which is just objectionable and counterproductive. So.
2: What are some of the ways that other Reformed, Orthodox denominations, churches are embracing critical?
0: Social justice movement? Uh, yeah, uh, sometimes formally, Southern Baptist Convention, uh, sometimes it makes its way into pulpits. Um, we had somebody <laughs> we had somebody arrive at, um, at All Saints in, in Fort Worth after having basically been thrown out of a Sunday school class at a church in Dallas for, for refusing to confess her white privilege. She's half Chinese and half Pakistani. <laughs> I mean, I, I just like, and so that's some of the ways. It's it's pastors and pastoral teams who are just clueless about. I mean, you read the New Testament and and the warnings about wolves and false teaching. They're all over the place, and I think. We're, it's much easier to be alert to yesterday's danger and I think some of that happens as well. So I would say sometimes denominationally, sometimes it's local level and so you get a fair diversity in denominations. Now, it, wonderfully, I think within the CREC, we don't have that kind of diversity of different attitudes to wokeness. I think our, our, our ministers and pastors, seem we, I think we're pretty much in the same place on this and we need to stay there. Um, uh, but in some denominations, um, congregations are not so blessed and... That's really unfortunate. And and this actually has a missional impact for us as a denomination. We are going to be picking up wounded sheep from churches and denominations that in the past we've thanked God for for several years to come, I think. Why does anti
2: Semitism tend to run with kinism, i.e., red pill conservatives?
0: I don't know the answer to that. I dimly remember James Lindsay talking about it on his podcast, but I can't remember what he said. Uh, It's interesting that it does. Um, And okay, so two things. First, I, I do think that's a really interesting question kind of conceptually to try and understand that. But Secondly, and mercifully, if you really get all the good stuff that Martin Luther King was trying to say—colorblindness as a as a doctrine, as a social doctrine—you don't need to worry about it, like because it just doesn't matter. I mean, Nicole didn't find out she was Jewish until how many years ago? Five years ago. Like we didn't change much, you know. Like really, and. Uh, I think it's, there is something beautifully translucent about the truth. And we've spent a lot of time the last couple of days kind of digging over the garbage of the Temple of Baal. But there is something luminously clear about the truth. And if you are a, a doctrine of uh, colorblindness and blindness to other inherited traits it's like a universal acid that cuts through all this stuff fairly effectively so yes, good question, I think um, Lindsay's got a podcast and there's other stuff in his book about it but I I don't know the answer but I think we need it functionally
2: Mm -hmm. Are there meaningful differences between how men and women embody this introspection and hyper-awareness of their
0: own feelings? Yeah, yeah, okay, I knew this was coming um (laughs) Well, yes, there are, so okay, remember what I said about um, i took I jumped on the bandwagon of taking myers Briggs to the cleaners because i um, mean it 's like that 's not difficult because everybody does there 's nobody it has been panned by every reputable psychologist who 's ever reviewed it, apart from the people who sell it, like I said um, but there are ways of measuring psychological traits that do have empirical validation. So the five-point model... What's the guy's name? Goldberg, is it? Um, some of those characteristics do have empirical validation in this sense that when you measure the characteristics, they reliably predict certain aspects of people's actual functioning in the world. So... For example, there's about a 0.4, I think, correlation between high levels of conscientiousness on that five-point scale and success in the workplace. And what that means is probably something like this. There's, there's, there's a, a cluster of traits, let's call it conscientiousness, which reliably produce good outcomes in business and can be measured and are measured using this set of questions. So you're, you're measuring something that's empirically meaningful. That's not, Myers-Briggs is not doing that. Okay, but the question then is, if you get all the men together and all the women together, and if you could hypothetically measure stuff about them well, would there be systematic differences? And the answer is, of course, yes, because we're made differently, particularly made differently in relation to families and children. And Nicole made this point to me after I was talking to her about this. She said, "You know, the point I made about feelings at 2.17 in the morning when the baby cries, there is a certain instinct in a mum to get out of bed. I can tell you that instinct is not in this dad. It's just not and, and so there are those those differences, those temperamental differences. Now this is what I'm getting at when I'm saying um, the point about emojis in uh, social media use undermining our ability to understand each other. Nicole and I are different. And our feelings do matter in the sense that I need to understand what the world looks like from inside her head and heart and she needs to understand me. So we need to come to some uh, mutual recognition of that. But the point is, what I feel is not morally determinative, and neither is it the case for her. So, yes, there are those systematic differences, but let's not baptize any of them uh, and absolutize them as though they justify um, uh, kind of systematic different treatment and so on. And the, you know, women are from Venus, men are from Mars, four love languages, all that stuff. It's a kind of pop psyche version of that. Um, So in other words, I'm I'm making a plea for two things in relation to emotions. Uh, Don't, no, probably three things. They're not sovereign. Emotions can be wrong and sinful. Second, they can't be cultivated directly, but only via other things. And then, thirdly, yes, we do need to try and understand them in each other because they, they do matter. But then, when we're trying to address them, it's not like I, I've got no handle on Nicole's joy. I can't sort of turn the joy up. <laughs> we're not to do that. Um, they're, they're, they're to be cultivated through other pursuits, alone and together. So. How can we
2: witness to the woke who are not so hostile to Christianity and so trained not uh, excuse me. Who are so hostile to Christianity and are trained not to think
0: Yeah, yeah. You might not be able to very well. Yeah, you might not be able to. Um, but this is now a general evangelistic principle. Never assume that what you see is what there is. You know that. You've read Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Remember her, her autobiography of her conversion. And you, you just go back and read that and. And note the difference between how she presented herself and what she was actually thinking at various points early on in her life. And then always always make the optimistic, because post-mill, charitable, because Jesus, assumptions about where people are. You know, witness to somebody as though they might just be about to break down in tears in front of you, or, or just about to say, you know, you're right, or just about to say, you know... Um, Actually, you do have a point. You know, have that kind of optimistic disposition, and and be ready to leave it in the hands of the Lord. And um, I don't, I don't think we're required to keep banging the same drum again and again. I don't think um, that old thing about um, uh, pray like a Calvinist and evangelize like an Arminian—that's wrong. It's just not true. We we evangelize like Calvinists as well, trusting the Lord to do His work, and. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of things which perhaps we shouldn't get into but um, you've read Friedman failure of nerve the way to lead people is not to get alongside them and cajole them and plead with them to please will you come with me and change but just go somewhere and remain sufficiently in touch with them that they can see you and understand you a little bit and relate to you so that they perhaps aspire to follow and that principle is fleshed out in Friedman all over the place in different ways Did you just skip over one there? What did that one say? Come on. Okay,
2: <laughs> We live right between two American Indian reservations. Hmm. Here These reservations have treaties with federal government that are legally binding. How should Americans think about the treaties and how should American Indians think about the treaties in relationship to non-Native peoples?
0: What do the treaties say?
1: You can, shop, you can fish here, you can't fish there. Uh, access to more monies, uh,
2: right. access to businesses that non-tribal non-tri- members can't run.
0: Right, okay, okay. So, this, so it's, a, it's partly um, federally granted access to resources. It's partly kind of protectionism. Protection of right. of okay. rights, hunting rights, things like that. Yeah, okay. All right, so um, two thoughts. First, uh, Romans 13 you know, uh, and if it's not a just government it's probably our fault ours, not ours specifically, but ours in the sense of the, the church through history, you know, the Lord has raised up unjust rulers because of unjust churches, so that doesn't mean the moral guilt devolves upon us, but let's remember that we don't get to sit here complaining about all these unjust rulers, we get to repent because judgment begins at the household of God and repentance should begin there too so first thing is you know, you're in a place with, a, with laws that might at some points be uh, un, unscriptural. and So, yeah, we, we live with that and we work with it. The second point I think I would make to people who might stand not to be initially hurt by those laws, but superficially helped by them, um, I'd want to encourage anybody who's relying on that kind of handout uh, and protectionist structure to get free of it as quickly as possible, just as I'd want to encourage anybody to get off welfare dependency as quickly as possible. It'll be much better for you, if you're getting $1,000 uh, a week in welfare, or whatever, I don't know, let's say $500 a week in welfare, it would be much better for you to work 40 hours a week and get $520. Even though the the incentive structure, so crackers, that, that most people, that's what keeps people on welfare. No, it's much better for you to to work a proper... Job, and only get the tiny bit more money, or even less money, because of what the striving to work in the way that redeemed children of Adam should work. Um, So I'd encourage, in summary, those harmed by that protectionism, fallen world, uh, uh, sinful rulers, sometimes as judgment on the church from previous generations, and to those helped by them, you don't want to be living on any kind of dependency indefinitely.
2: Take it from your answer that crackers is a bad
0: thing. Yeah, crackers is a bad Yeah, <laughs> is that? It's one of those words that didn't make it across the Atlantic in the 17th century. Okay. They, they, um, have you ever said crackers to them? You have, and they still didn't understand when you said it. There's no hope for me then. <laughs> All right.
2: You said uh, that part of good English is how many possible 10-word sentences it allows. Right. Similar for music. Yeah. But you also said that flitting from Beethoven's fifth happy birthday song is a downside of TikTok. How do you reconcile these? What makes more possibilities in a discrete combinatorial?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's... Um, uh, the, the, the fact that you can generate long strings of musical a linguistic... Gibberish is a problem, and four notes of Beethoven's Fifth, and then a bit of Ina and Up music, and then Happy Birthday to You is musical gibberish. It's like a line of Shakespeare, a line of Dickens, a line of Herbert. So there is value in in um, uh, acknowledging the benefit of the sustained attention to a particular thing, whether it's a a linguistic string, that is to say, a book, or a musical string. So that is A piece of music Um, and the point about it being a discrete discrete combinatorial system rather than a blended system is that the combining of those elements produces more complexity and more possibility and more beauty and more variety it doesn't just all blend to a kind of dull average Um, so uh, we want to take the uh, yeah the, the Um, The literary version of that that um, thought comes in different sized chunks sometimes there's an aphorism or a haiku or a short paragraph or a short essay or a longer essay or a a book or a series of books now um, the problem with social media is it hyper privileges things that are this small and then encourages you to flip from this to something else and the break in attention is cognitively destructive and prevents serious engagement with a a serious issue whereas if you read a book your attention is focused on one, if it's a good book, coherent uh, development of a theme for a period of time and that's a, a sort of mental and spiritual discipleship same with music, it's why you sit down if you do, and listen to a piece of music. And it's a good thing to do so. So, I don't know whether that's quite getting at the heart of the question, but um, hopefully it's getting somewhere.
2: What is the role of feelings in evaluating the objective beauty of literature, music, architecture,
0: and so on? That's a good question. Um, What's the role of feelings in evaluating the objective beauty of music, art, architecture? Right. so the question is an interesting one because it acknowledges there's such a thing as objective beauty which is, that's good that doesn't mean it's easy to define what objective beauty is and if you've read Ken Myers um, All God's Children and Blue Suede Shoes one of the points he makes is that in order to evaluate the beauty or goodness of a cultural artifact one needs not just to pay attention to it in isolation but also the, the cultural concomitance that it brings with it so an example would be um, uh, a hamburger, like is, is a McDonald's hamburger, good? Well, you, you, you can't answer that question just by breaking it down into its constituent nutrients. You actually need to ask the question: what what kind of community does it tend to create? What how does it encourage people to eat? How what kind of conversation and other social interaction tends to result from engaging in eating it? And so you've then got. McDonald's hamburger and what your grandma makes hamburger when you go round to see her and they might be nutritionally about the same although I doubt it but the latter is much richer as a cultural artefact because of its association so that's um, what Myers is talking about at various points about evaluating these artefacts. Now where do our feelings play into it? What we want is for our feelings to be cultivated to appreciate that which is objectively good and that's the decisive break with Rousseau Rousseau's going to say, no, 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 your feelings are decisive, and Freud is going to say, so I'm going to dig down into your heart to uncover your feelings, and then we'll make things that you like. No, 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 what we want to have is, what's good? What what things produce and are associated with what is good and wonderful in human life? Now let's learn to appreciate that. So you take a six-year-old to a classical concert. And They might be a bit fidgety, so don't take them to a huge. Don't take them to Marla's, you know. Well, actually, you could take them to Marla too because that's awesome. But but don't take them to some four-hour marathon opera, five acts or something. But take them to see something, and they'll they grow into it. They cultivate a taste for it, like you cultivate a taste for beer and malt whiskey and uh, cricket and <laughs> you know good things. So the the point here is that to 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 recognise that all taste needs to be shaped by that which is good, so you learn to appreciate things. And so, one story, I'm I'm really proud of one of our kids in the musical era era, area because. So two of them, music came naturally to them. One of them, it wasn't so natural, and and she 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 struggled to sing tunefully and so on, but. She worked really hard at it with Nicole. Nicole spent hours you know, just helping her to learn to sing and graciously and patiently. And now she's got a lovely singing voice and she really loves music. And, but that wasn't natural to her. But she's, I'm so proud of her because she's cultivated that taste for what is actually objectively beautiful. We went to a concert the other night. We, it was, um, what was it, Beethoven? Oh, I've forgotten. It was um, Enigma Variations and something else, I forget. Um, violin Concerto. Um, and I said to her, I'm really proud of you that you've got to this point where you love this because it wasn't natural to her. So that's what I'm thinking about feelings. What, what is good and beautiful? And learn to feel the goodness of that. And you do so by practicing it. Yeah. And shouldn't we also,
2: on that, I think it seems to me it's very critical, is to learn to embrace the
1: difficulty. Yeah. Right?
2: right? Because yeah. I think. Egocentric, kind of expressivist sense is that if it, I don't find it meaningful, if mm. I don't find it accessible, if I don't find it to be enjoyable, then it's not. Yes, right? yes. But yes. if, and it seems like all good things have this, mm. the reward is the struggle of the
0: difficulty mm-hmm. of coming to understand yes, yes. and see what previously you could not yes. see. Exactly. And, and people used to go to music appreciation classes, didn't they? And art appreciation classes and wine appreciation classes. Just think about that for a second. I, I'm going to pay money for you to teach me how to enjoy something I don't enjoy. Yeah, Rousseau is spinning in his grave, and good job too, because I hope he gets dizzy. You know, We, we want to be the sort of people who invest ourselves in learning to love things that are difficult to love but are still good. And that that's means safe.
2: embracing, seeing the challenge not as the as, as something that's a sign of something wrong.
0: Right. Right. Yes.
2: yes. But rather as mm. actually something that's
0: right. Yes, and this connects to uh, one young lady came to me yesterday and said, um, you know, she's thinking about her future. What should she do? And what I wanted to say, she had been, you know, sitting on her bed, con- con- contemplating her feelings, wondering what to do. And I want to say, well, no, find something that you can throw yourself into, which is kind of demanding, but not impossibly demanding. Um, if you're, you know, in your 40s, don't train to be a neurosurgeon. Too, t- you'll, you'll run out of time, and you won't ever be able to practice. But what what would, not what I like to do, but, well, what could I do? What I'm gifted at? Do I have a kind of initial sort of desire in this area, and some expertise? And But what then will be challenging? I, I love programming you know, kind of games on my computer with some little app that helps me do it really easily. Okay, well that's, that's good. That's kind of easy because you've got the app to help you. So, come on. Uh, coding. Where's a coding boot camp? Could you do a coding boot camp? Three months of 100 hour weeks and then you come out the other end and you... That, that kind of challenge is... Uh, and you'll find you lose yourself in it and you look up from your desk and think oh, I've been enjoying this. you found joy without looking for it.
2: And the difficulty actually produces something of value on the other end. So when you step back and have the joy, the the feeling of accomplishment, there's something to
0: point to. And it's a feeling of accomplishment which is good, Mm -hmm. and it's changed you. Have you noticed that um, many uh, traits like the capacity to work hard are domain independent? The reason is because um, what's happened is that somebody, a young lad has cultivated the ability to work hard on the rugby field shoveling dirt in the backyard and doing his math homework when he was seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old and then turns out that he can really work hard at Latin when he's at college and then it turns out that he can really work hard as an office manager and then a supervisor and then as a senior manager in business and it's all hard but he's cultivated the capacity to do it well and so when you say, listen, I need some help moving house, you know he's going to be the guy who'll get there early and he'll be shifting the most stuff. Because working hard is a domain-independent <coughs> character trait that's formed in us by the struggle that we... People who can lift weights can also lift boxes, yeah, can also lift wardrobes downstairs and so on and so forth. It's domain-independence, again. Yeah. Really? I don't believe (laughs) that. Not with this crowd. But anyway, go on. First, if you haven't seen the
2: Levi's Wokies skit from SNL, you you can find it on YouTube. It's an absolute (laughs) must-see.
0: I'll I'll, I'll make a point to look it up at some point.
2: (laughs) I work for a mid-sized company that has gone woke but wobbled a little during COVID.
0: Excuse
2: me, I read it wrong. Hasn't gone woke, right. But has wobbled a little bit during. Mm. I think they may be susceptible to the agenda, and I'm wondering if you have suggestions on defensive measures I could take mm. from a manager level. Okay. Uh, or what can I? What might I see that could possibly be a
0: canary? Canary in the coal Yeah. Um, I can't recommend Pincourt and Lindsay's book highly enough. Counterwoke craft. It's very short, very slim. Uh, it's not a Christian book. Sorry. Um, but it's, J- James Lindsay is a very smart guy and knows this material and is um, just very good at helping us understand it. I don't know who Pinkhor is because it's not his name. Um, or her. No, wouldn't um, know. So I think, in terms of the practical nitty gritty, that book is well worth reading. And I think, uh, yeah, the, uh, the underlying motif is uh, Gramsci, Dutschke, long march through the institutions. Watch for the bureaucrats. Watch for the bureaucrats. Um, a tro- I think it was James Lindsay described critical theories as a Trojan horse full of bureaucrats. Because once you've got a bureaucrat who's put this speech code in place, the CEO has to obey it. Everybody has to do what the code says and what the code does is not just control how you say what you say it enshrines a way of thinking about the world and if you've got to call a man she now then you've what you're doing is embodying in your life the view that, that sex and gender vary independently and gender is malleable Wrong. so watch the bureaucrats and read that book you? true true
2: denominations
0: to you. yeah watch the bureaucrats. It's quite nice in the CRC because we're not allowed to have standing committees, are we? We can't own property, can't have standing committees. There's almost nothing that bureaucrats could do in this. Like anybody who really wanted to climb the greasy pole, they'd have to go elsewhere, wouldn't they? A book of procedures like this thick, it's great. <laughs> but there is, I think, if you,
2: if you recognise that, Krish and I have spoken about this as yeah. we've been through council meeting after council meeting, there is a tendency, it seems, Creation yeah. of legislation,
0: yeah, and yeah, policies, which which
2: often well-meaning individuals yeah. want to proliferate as a way of keep holding things at bay. Yeah, often only to find themselves after a year's gone by to have established the very means of their own yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and that's a part of a wider issue with so John Frame, normative, situational, existential, and some of you are familiar with this. Um, A normative perspective on an issue will ask, what are the rules, what are the procedures, what are the principles? Situational will ask, what are the consequences, what are the things that led to this, what are the attendant circumstances? Existential will ask, what are the relevant relationships that might help this to work well? And the danger is of always pursuing a normative-only approach to solving problems. So denominations that run normatively have massive books of procedures, terrible relationships between their clergy who never see each other, and they can't respond to new situations. Whereas a, a denomination that is alert to all three perspectives will have a quite slim book of procedure and won't let people keep proposing new memorials to add to the appendices. <laughs> Not that you were going um, to. And what it will do is place a very high premium on getting the guys together so they know each other, personally, existential, and each other's situation. So then we're like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a different situation. We need to create an opportunity to function well in that situation, rather than, well, we don't have a rule for that, that can't be done. So, yeah, totally with you. And um, it becomes a huge problem in business when the business gets big, because once it gets beyond a certain size, you can't know everybody. And that's a problem. So you can't then rely on the existential components. So you end up with you know, the manual for working at Facebook or whatever it is, 400 pages long and, and 300 of those pages are the speech code. <laughs> I don't know that that's the numbers, but that's the kind of thing. Right, and then you've got a problem. Steve, thank you so much for us today. My pleasure. Yesterday,
2: and uh, We are so blessed to have your wisdom. Thank you for it. And thank you for the hard work. Again, you went into preparing for us. Uh, we're just super grateful. Pray for us. Uh, that we would be able to really think deeply about these things. And I think one th- uh, final thing is that I know our people would probably greatly appreciate the fruit of your work. If there are works like the sum that you have just mentioned to us, you mm-hmm. might get a full list of the books oh, yeah. that you think worth really focusing really
0: on. Dig on really digging into. Yeah, yeah.
2: That would take us further beyond this. We could even put some of them in our next bookstore
0: available. To Annotated bibliography kind of thing. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. Um, let me just say while I've got a pause, just thank you once again. I love coming here. Um, uh, I don't know all of you, uh, but I do know some of you. I'm about to sound like Bilbo Baggins, wasn't I? <laughs> I don't know half of well, you. Anyway, but it, um, it's just a, a really uh, wonderfully uh, warm and attentive and thoughtful community. And I, I hope I get a chance to chat a little bit with some more of you later. I'm looking forward to worship tomorrow. You're going to be there. So great, let's worship God together. And um, I get to preach, which is going to be awesome for me. I hope it will be fun for you as well.